You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That ain't that what we're supposed to do? It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. I think what you're trying to ask is uh, why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with uh, 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 black culture. I think that's what you're asking. It's, it's, I have no choice over it. In the first place, to me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. I mean, and I mean that in every, every sense, uh, outside and inside. And to me, we have a culture that uh, is surpassed by, 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 by no other civilization, but we don't know anything about it. So, again, I think I've said this before in the same interview, I think uh, at some time before, my, my job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. I am your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo, and welcome to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We are the return of intelligent radio as we ensure the free flow of opinions and push the envelope on the questions America's afraid to ask in the mainstream media. Good morning, Oshun. Glad to have you with me, Queen, uh, and all the intellectual outcasts out there listening. If it's been a minute since you've listened to the show, uh, we've moved from truth seekers to intellectual outcasts. So I'm glad to have you on with me. If you will, Queen, if you will, say hello to the Truth Seekers before we introduce our guests. And go ahead and give a little bit of your background. But thank you for filling in. I know you're on the road out there. But right now, you sound pretty. Uh, I don't think I hear the background noise. So hopefully we're good with that. But go ahead, Queen. Thank you for being with me. Yeah, as per usual, I'm running behind schedule. So I should be on the road right now. However, I'm not. But I will be soon. Um, okay. Peace, y'all. My name is Oshun Ojo, and I am um, a community, a lifelong community activist, grassroots organizer. Um, I'm a techie. Um, I deal with several, several organizations that specialize in bringing um, tech and specifically computer programming um, to disenfranchised and marginalized black youth. Um, and I'm so happy to be here today to have this conversa- conversation with y'all. I'm excited. Thank you for having me, Montoya. Uh, glad to have it. We're going to go super deep with this. Uh, our special guest is a brother who, uh, again, if you're a first-time listener, uh, in a sense I refer to, intellectual outcasts, if they will, when they call in to give us their three cents, right? Like we, you know, we just, uh, you know, we consider my audience the smartest audience in all of radio, and so we don't give out just two cents. We give out three cents on this show, and this brother calls in and gives out four cents every time, so I'm glad to have him as a guest, brother Emil Bryant, uh, platinum level member of the Mental Dialogue Community Club. If you will, King, thank you for being with us. Say hello um, to my special guest co-host, Oshun, to the intellectual outcast, and tell people a little bit about yourself. Thank you for being with us, King. 
Peace and, and good morning to those who are in the morning stage of their day. I appreciate the opportunity, Montoya, to speak to Oshun. Welcome, Queen. It's a pleasure to uh, be alongside you in this conversation. Montoya, as always, I love being here with you so that I can, so I can be smart. And sometimes I forget that my people need every type of entertainment, every type of education, every type of information delivered to them in multiple dimensions. And one of those dimensions is mental dialogue going hard on some of the tough topics of the day. And I'm welcome, and I'm happy to be welcomed by you and Oshun today. No, absolutely. Glad to have you. If y'all have heard Emil Colleen, y'all know this brother is absolutely brilliant. If you haven't heard, you will find out um, over the course of the next hour. We got him for the first hour with us. And so I'm glad to have you, King. But this morning's discussion question, again, if you're a first-time listener, I know I keep saying that, but for first-time listeners, I go by Black Socrates. I basically take the Socratic approach to issues of race, sex, and culture within our community. And so we always offer the show in the form of a question. And this morning's discussion question, do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? Do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? And Queen, we'll start with you. You've done this before. And so basically, I always start the show the same way, which is when you heard the discussion question, I kind of remember you made a little sound that made me sound like, okay, she's interested in this, but I don't know what the thought was behind that sound. So what was your initial thought? We will save the deeper thought to after the first break. But if you will, what was your initial thought when you heard the question worded this particular way? Um, my initial thought is that you, hands down, have the best conversation pieces to build on on your show. Um, pertaining to the actual topic, um, my thought was uh, heartbreak, for lack of a better word, because, yeah, I just, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like, um, I felt like, uh, I felt that sense of struggle that we carry on us, and I, it, it just came down on me. No, I respect that. I'm glad to have you with you, especially um, just even with your history as a longtime activist. Um, I know there's a deep history there, and I will go ahead and and I'll say warn you to a degree because I want to go as deep as I can with this show. And um, it definitely helps to have our special guest, Mia, who, again, is just kind of a deep thinker in itself, just as you are, Oshun. And so if you will, King, same thing to you. Uh, when I said, hey, man, can you help me out on the show? Uh, kind of thought of it last minute or whatever, so obviously thank you for jumping in on the last minute with me. But when you heard the title of the show, and, you know, we kind of had a back and forth on the Just My Three Cents podcast a few weeks in a similar, kind of in a similar area. So I don't know if that popped in your mind or not, but if you will, what was your initial thought when you heard the question worded that way, Emil? Emil, did we lose you? You might be on mute. Yeah, brother. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm no problem. Here. All right, no problem. Yeah, what was your first initial thought? It was thought powerful when you heard to hear you want to address this topic. And uh, my people, and I'm black, I'm proudly black, my people forget that there's two sides to every coin and there's so many dimensions to the human experience. And my people forget that we have to embrace more. So my initial thought was not do we embrace struggle um, as a badge of honor, but why don't we embrace the beauty of our culture as a badge of honor? I reframed it because I was like, Gil, where are we, what are we missing that our beauty isn't the first thing we step to when we think about ourselves and our culture. Okay. I like, I like that reframing. It's definitely an interesting angle to, um, in a sense, partake in this question. And so um, we've got a couple of minutes before we go to break, so we'll dig just a little deeper. As a matter of fact, I'll kind of share, uh, in a sense, the thought 
process behind it um, for myself, if you will. Do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? And so for me, there's a lot of things that, in a sense, we're in the social media age. And so to a degree, as much as we say social media, quote, unquote, is not real, um, the, the unfortunate reality is to a degree, some people really do live out their lives on social media. So it's almost like we were able to take a little uh, piece of society and in a sense provide some type of viewpoint. And so when I thought about do we as a community, as black people, if you will, wear struggle like a badge of honor, I've definitely seen it play out um, several ways. And I'll say this as a thought and get both of you a quick thought, and then we'll go deeper to this coming out of the break. But uh, a, con- a, con- a term that I, ca- I think I, I don't know, other people may have said it, but I know I, I, I think I may have invented it or whatever, but I'll say quite often, there's times where there's divide within our community, and sometimes it can be simple as what I call we, we play the black enough Olympics. And so if somebody does something that's not black enough, we quickly ostracize them or whatever. And typically it's usually related to them not, quote, unquote, being on code or some, some, not under some, some understanding some version of our struggle. Those are the areas where I see someone get charged with not being black enough, if you will. Um, Emil, you're our special guest. Got about a minute before break, so we can give you just a 30-second thought, and I want to get Oshun's 30-second um, thought before we go to break. So my context of not being on code is being a kid from Oregon who grew up in the 70s and 80s. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know I should have known growing up. And a bunch of that stuff was the struggle. Didn't understand it the way others did from the Deep South. Didn't understand it in ways that people did from the East Coast. Didn't understand it at all. Uh, okay, so, so this is your story. Now, thank you for that. Now, thank you for that. Just keeping it quick. Yeah. Um, I'll yep. show a 30-second thought from you. We'll go deeper after the break. But just a quick 30-second thought on that, just that concept before we go to break. Yeah, I agree with um, your summation that usually being on code is is um, related to our ability to understand certain aspects of the black um, experience. Um, and I think we need to have more balance when it comes to that. No, absolutely. Let's get into the dialogue. We'll go to this break. As usual, pay attention to the cut. We're going to start out with an amazing cut from um, Dr. George DeGruy, which I think is an appropriate place to start this conversation after our commercials. If you're out there listening, I will open up the phone lines in the next segment for you to get in and give us your three cents because we are a live interactive show. Uh, We'll be right back. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Do you need marketing designed specifically to compete in today's digital age? Well, look no further than Emoreg Digital Business Solutions a marketing agency that's well-equipped to provide solutions to the challenges faced by businesses looking to acquire and retain customers in today's ultra-competitive marketing world. Whether it's video creation, website or logo design, mobile app development, social media and email marketing, or e-commerce design and development, Emoreg Digital Business Solutions has the answer. Visit them at emoregedbs.com. That's E-M-O-R-E-J-D-B-S dot com or call 864-221-3632. That's 864-221-3632. Emores Digital Business Solutions. We're the solution to your marketing challenges. 
the kind of a fundamental basis for post-traumatic slave syndrome. How many of you are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder? But when we start talking about chattel slavery, we're not talking about one trauma. We're not talking about a specific event. We're talking about generations of trauma with no intervention. Based on what I know about sugar plantations, tobacco, and the Caribbean, what I know about American chattel slavery and the plantations there, does anyone right now ever recall mental health assistance to slaves? Anybody remember sending in the therapist after I sold off your son, daughter, raped folks? Any, at any point? Never. Second question. After slavery was officially over, now you're free. Anybody any remember, remember any therapy then? We know it's been rough, it's been deep for you, it's been difficult, we're going to do a little group therapy. Anybody remember that? That would be no. Number three, after slavery officially ended, both in the States, in the Caribbean, the British ended, do you remember whether or not trauma continued? Did the trauma continue for people of African descent? I need to know. Okay, so now let's do the math. Hundreds of years of trauma, no treatment. Freed, more trauma, no treatment. What do you do the math? Do you think there may be residual impacts of that trauma? Of course there is. It didn't end, friends, and it hasn't ended yet. So I think one, on one point, African people and people of African descent are extremely resilient. Matter of fact, I think we're a miracle. Welcome back to the Mr. Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo. Our special guest is Emil Bryant. For this morning's discussion question, do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? Again, as we hear a cut from Dr. George Grew. I think I'm saying her name correctly. I always mess it up. Uh, but but I'll, um, I think she ends similar to what you were saying, uh, Emil, um, before we just drop back on the, as I say, the Black Enough Olympics and how it plays a role in this concept for today. Uh, but she just says, hey, hey, black people are a miracle, which kind of reaps to your uh, sentiments when you said you wanted to, in a sense, reframe today's question, as well as you are one to in a sense, go back to some of that history to see how it relates to today. We know that quite often, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, even this concept that we're talking about today, some of it plays out because we don't pay attention to some of that history. Um, if you will, just give us your thoughts, just kind of giving, kind of setting up a backdrop from a historical standpoint based on what you heard from Dr. George. So I, I love that context that she's placing, that there's unhealed, unaddressed uh, trauma that needs to have some form of intervention. And we don't have a formal, holistic process to intervene in our trauma to help us begin the process of healing as a culture and very rarely as individuals and families. So the first step to me is to acknowledge there's trauma in the first place, that the things that the culture went through that black people in America have gone through over the last 400 years on this North American continent is worthy of discussion as trauma. That's the first thing. It wasn't just human history. It wasn't just this thing. 
there was a significant element to this thing, uh, to, to the experience in North America that has to be addressed very clearly. Once we start acknowledging the trauma, then we can say, what do we do about the trauma as a culture? And now we can have another discussion, and this is a series of discussions that starts with what your people went through, what your families went through, what your generations went through is traumatic in every context of the world. Now we can say, what do we do about that? And we can start building a conversation that has mechanisms like therapy, like um, social services that begin to address the trauma. And then we can go forward and say, once we've dealt with the trauma or are dealing with the trauma, what does a future look like where we have resolved some of this or at least acknowledge that we're trying to resolve this en masse as a group of people? Once we get that historical context together, the, the wheels come off the bus, and we can start really defining our future much better than we have up to this date. No, absolutely. Uh, when I say, you know, even the concept of the Black Enough Olympics, right, when I, you know, use that term, as frustrated as I personally can, can get with that we, in a sense, play that game, uh, you, you don't understand the struggle, you're not, you're not black enough, or you say something that's off-code and you're automatically labeled some type of derogatory name. I think one of y'all might have to throw in the background because I hear feedback. Just throwing it out. All right, I don't hear it anymore. All right, cool. So, um, and, you know, somebody's off cold, and we, um, and I still hear the feedback. Let me figure out who it is. Give me a second so I can get that feedback out. All right, y'all, testing, testing, testing. All right, let's see. That might be you. It might be you, Emil, because I don't hear it anymore. So I'm gonna to try to mute and unmute you so we can cut on some of that um, that uh, cut out some of that background. So anyway, sorry about that, y'all. I just wanted to kind of check out. I don't want y'all to keep hearing that um, background um, feedback. All right. So as I was saying, that um, the idea of as frustrated as I get with the Black Enough Olympics, if you will, what we're talking about now, what Emil is saying, what Dr. DeGruy is pointing out, is as frustrated as I can get. What Emil is really saying that. Even if I'm personally frustrated with the fact that we do this in a in a sense as a culture, not all of us, but a lot of people do this in a sense. If I remember and acknowledge the trauma that Emil's referring to, then it it makes me even have empathy, a necessary empathy, of understanding why that dynamic exists versus simply being frustrated. Like Ashun, I'll go to you now, Queen. As you've mentioned, it's something that we need to understand and need to work on. But I'm pretty sure, like myself, it's frustra- it, it, it could frustrate you as well, but you're not, you don't just stay in a place of frustration because you understand what's behind it. And I think what Emil is saying, what Dr. DeGruy is saying, is what often is missed in these conversations. We end up just kind of pointing the finger and, you know, maybe you've got, a, maybe you've got some therapy and you've moved on from some of this trauma that we're talking about right now. And so people often will get help and just look down upon one another without really understanding, hey, there's trauma there that we're not acknowledging. So that's why the person is doing it. We'll just be frustrated and point the finger and almost create a whole nother divide as some of us develop and we look down on some others who haven't in our eyes yet. We all got our own area of weakness, but we don't think of it in that moment. We're just frustrated. Again, I came up with the term Black Enough Olympics but I understand why we have that dynamic by acknowledging that trauma. Your thoughts, Queen? 
Yeah, I agree. I think um, one of the first things that I thought about is that um, we have to be, we've been in a, in a position of survival in this country and in other countries where we've been enslaved and colonized. And uh, people who are in survival mode can't heal. That Those two things are contradictory. So um, we have to be patient with ourselves because we haven't been in a position collectively to, to be uh, um, in a healing place. Um, no matter what we think we've done, you know, collectively. But I do, I mean, uh, individually, but I do understand that some people are frustrated. I often get frustrated still. Um, and and like you said, it's humbling when you think about your own shortcomings and the, on the ways that you need to grow yourself. But it is very frustrating, and the reason why is because we're in the age of information. If we live in the age of information and this information is accessible to everybody, to everyone, then it feels like people are making a choice. And that's why I think that we get frustrated with other people. It's not because they don't know. It's because we feel like they're choosing not to know or choosing not to understand. And so let me dig into that just for a brief second. I would love to hear Lamille's thoughts on that as well, because I definitely see people have that frustration and saying, hey, they're choosing. And I think Emil would agree with this. And I think even you would as I kind of offer this thought to what you're saying. You kind of don't know what you don't know. So while we may be frustrated at the at the action, and we'll say in the age of information, there's no excuse. But if you don't know that the reason you're wilding out is because you're suffering from post-traumatic racism, the symptom of um, having a subconscious thought of not having a, 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 a possibly having a shortened life, that's not something that you're you're consciously acknowledging, but you're experiencing as a past found trauma. So you're kind of wilding out and, and, and doing your thing. You don't know to go read post-traumatic slaves in the Dr. DeBrew's book to get help with that because you're not even aware that that's your issue. You just think you like to kind of, you know, live on life on the edge. Emil, your thoughts, King? Let me bring you back in. Are uh, you live? Go ahead. Uh- absolutely true that that information is out there. The motivation to access it comes from someplace else, though, and that's the part that a lot of us struggle with, is as a kid from Oregon who didn't grow up around a a large black presence, even though I went to a black church and had a big black family, um, the motivation wasn't there until I got to the Air Force Academy when I was in a very not black institution where I started craving more about myself more about my past. The trigger was different than for, for me, and it's different for you and others. There are these people who don't have those triggers. So the information being available isn't enough. They have to be hungry for it, and they have to go seek it out, and they have to be motivated by something or someone to do that. For me, it was reading The uh, Man, Child, and the Promised Land, um, and that sparked a lot of my interest as to why this person is writing this book about this condition that doesn't look like what I know, but has some serious ramifications for my future. That is part of the problem that we face today is there's no trigger for the hunger to access this free information. Your thoughts, Oshun, again, with your history as an activist, if, if you will, what what was your, what do you call it, flashpoint? I think it's the word you use. What was your flashpoint into your level of consciousness? And I'm just c- kind of curious, again, because you have a long history with, you know, in a sense, being a lifelong activist. And so I'm uh, just kind of curious because, like, as I'm kind of mentioning, and it may sound like I'm making an excuse, but we're really just talking this all the way out. I also get, even when I'm frustrated with 
people in a you know again we all have our own shortcomings, but in a sense when I'm frustrated with someone holding someone to an obscene standard, I quite often know that they don't know better because they may not have had that flashpoint, if you will. So just what was your flashpoint, and in a sense, how does it relate to this dialogue that we're having right now, in your opinion? Um, I I really can't remember a particular thing okay. that happened. That was my point. Um, I grew up in a family that was extremely um, African-centered. I was always told who I was about our struggle. We had to learn about black history. So I was nice. very aware. And then growing up in the South, um, in a the first generation in um, a school system that had been segregated when my, when my mother was a child, um, and having, you know, that dynamic where they, in the South, where it's a very still, you know, segregated kind of situation, um, I was very um, hypersensitive to to what we faced as black people. I was, I was very aware of it. Um, so I feel like kind of a mixture between my personality and my family dynamic um, kind of uh, made me have interest in it. So I don't know if I had a, a specific point, but I do know that um, I feel like, like you said before, that um, some some people may not have had that point, right? And I feel like, even though I understand completely what you both are saying, that the information is there, you have to want to get it, and, you know, those different things that, that, that lead us to that information, but I feel like also how could you be a black person in America in 2022? Um, sons like the last generation, like my kids, they don't know. But before that, uh, not that they don't know because I teach them, but, I mean, absent of what I teach them, they would have really no recollection of, you know, um, um, the things that we've seen. So aside from that, how could you be an adult in America in 2022 and not have encountered things? I think people are – what people. not that I'm saying this. I think people are sometimes saying that people are being willfully obtuse. They have experienced these things. They've had that flashpoint over and over again, but they are choosing to uh, be docile. And so um, I would challenge that from a psychological standpoint. For the callers out there, if you want to get in on this discussion, press 1. That's how you get in to speak with us online. The number to get in if you're online is 646-787-1691. Again, 646-787-1691. And so, um, again, we're just we're dialoguing this all the way out. i got a place I want to go, but I, just, I, gotta, I, think, I, I think it's imperative that we understand what acknowledgement actually is. So I love that the idea of willfully obtuse, as you say. Here's my however to you, uh, Oshun, and it's, and it's when you really understand how trauma works. So if you take it out of the context of the trauma that we experienced way back in enslavement or whatever, obviously we're a mental dialogue, so we have access to um, a lot of therapists. So just if you think about how trauma works, and I'm pretty sure you've seen this or maybe experienced your own or whatever, but when, the way trauma works is just having the experience doesn't make you aware of some of what we're saying. A lot of times when we, we have a community checkup event once a month, every last Thursday, where we have people come on and talk to therapists because we're trying to be a bridge. We know that's kind of can be an issue in our community or whatever. But one of the first things that some people, when they finally take their first um Take, finally take the step to get there because one of the first things a lot of the people will say is, is this normal? So while they've had experiences up until finally getting therapy, they go, it was so normal for them, they're going to the therapist saying, is this an issue or is it not? So even with the experience, 
due to the trauma they don't know. I'll give you a real life example at the Air Force Academy. I went to the academy as well. But I remember this young man who had probably a similar background to you, which is quite common at the academy, um, Emil, where he um, didn't grow up around hardly any black people, whatever. And so, you know, in a sense, he wasn't down. He wasn't. He, you know, he he didn't he didn't score too high in the black enough Olympics, if you will, right? And so uh, we were always tripping on how he would side with others versus you know those of us who were kind of coming from the struggle and had a similar experience. And you know how we all kind of get, to a degree, a lot of us will get tight due to the fact that it is a majority um, white institution and not that many of us. But you know, you always have those kind of with those type of backgrounds who don't, in a sense, they're not quote unquote down. I remember by the time that young man was a junior, I kind of he was he was a freshman up under me. But by the time he was junior, he had a, an experience like what you're talking about, Oshun, in which he finally kind of woke up to okay, the world isn't like I thought it was. Some of what you've been um, saying, Montoya, is true, and he came to me kind of in desperation to say, "Hey, this happened to me. It wasn't fair. I've never experienced this. I don't know what to do with it." Watch this, Oshun. I made the biggest mistake in the world. My flashpoint was Malcolm X in the seventh grade. Now I'm a, I'm a, a senior or a junior at this time. I, he might have been a sophomore. So I'm last couple of years at the college. So I'm a senior at this time. And the guy that we've been trying to kind of groom and say, hey, things, you know, you need to figure out what's going on here. He has his own personal situation where he says, let me go to the only guy that I've heard talk about this stuff. I literally give him the Malcolm X book, it was my flashpoint. It was too much for him. I ran him away from ever seeking consciousness. I didn't figure it out until six months later, though. He never wanted to have that conversation again because it was too much based on his experience. Uh, we're up against the break, um, but I'm going I'm to push the break back just a little bit because I know Emil probably can relate to this. Again, it's just a dialogue about what that seeking it out what that flashpoint might be. I think, Oshun, your experience within your family who's been conscious for so long, you were kind of born into it, so it makes sense to me that you didn't have a flashpoint. But, Emil, how does that story relate to you? Because I definitely found out, maybe I made a huge mistake with that man. Yeah, man. Uh, I totally relate to it. So it took me years to assimilate the information that made me understand who I was historically. My father raised us as black is beautiful. He was very conscious. He was an activist in the 60s. Um, got, my mother was, integrated her elementary school. So I came from a family that had some consciousness, but in an environment where it's not normal because you're not around a lot of black kids, that integration into blackness through an academic journey like I took is very difficult if you start, boom. So I kept a library for that reason and I was like, where is this person in their journey toward consciousness? And then I would give them the appropriate tools that I had at the time. That was probably the most important thing I learned because my introduction to true blackness was man child in the promised land and Christmas jazz. It was Christmas jazz that, that, that got me to thinking about the black experience outside of the struggle, the beauty of the black experience. And Christmas jazz and man child in the promised land was a very gentle introduction versus what the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X would be to somebody who's much older than I was at the time, trying to learn how to figure out their, navigate something that's really unfamiliar to them as, in terms of overt racism. So to me, that's the really, the, the key is that 
we are often looking at it monolithically instead of on a spectrum, and that mm-hmm. person's need when they're coming into consciousness is something that we have to be very loving and very gentle with because it's not the same for every person. It wasn't the same for you. It wasn't the same for me. And it won't be the and certainly for Oshun, her 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 vastly different experience from mine in terms of being in a culture that is just Afrocentric at all times. Those are different ways that we have been built or bred into the into the consciousness. For someone who's never been there before, we have to figure out what their entry point is. And if the entry point is a is an act of overt racism that um, bewilders them, that that disorients them, then we have to reorient them. And help them along that path, and those are those are that's hard. But you got to kind of know where a person is in their journey, and then give them the help they need, so you can bring them along. And I know you didn't do that, but you've learned since then. Uh, mental dialogue is strong, strong stuff for a reason. But that's for people who are already on the journey. There's another way to do it for those of those people who are being disoriented for the first time as adults, or especially young adults. I, I blew it up soon. I want to hear your thought because my next cut is not even a commercial. It's something I want y'all to listen to. So we're, we're not really blowing past the actual break. We're going to play this cut, but I want to get you a thought before we go to this, this, this cut that I want y'all to listen to. So just a thought in that and how, you know what I'm saying? So in my eyes, when it comes to that type of experience for a lot of people, I still would say it's not willfully obtuse for a lot of people, and I just use that one example. Obviously, it's one example, but I would think there's a lot of people in that space, especially if they, I grew up in the South, so, you know, I was able to handle, you know, Malcolm X in the seventh grade, but that dude being exposed for the first time, I blew it. I blew it. Go ahead, Osho. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking I've been that person who blew it probably dozens, hundreds of times in my lifetime because um, my approach can be very direct and very harsh. And um, I haven't always considered where people are on their journey, but it's also humbling because I'm thinking now, like, you know, the older I get and the more experience that I have, um, I learn new things and things that elders told me years and years ago that I didn't understand, I understand now. And so at some point, even today, somebody is looking at me saying, oh, she'll get there. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, it's just, <laughs> you know, yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, it's really a lesson in humility and, and empathy. We have to, if you love black people, you have to be, you have to have empathy for black people and, and speak uh, with kindness. Even though you can be um, very honest and direct, you still have to be kind and empathetic. And uh, it's a lesson that I'm still learning today. So I wouldn't, don't, don't beat yourself up about that, brother. We all been there. Oh, no doubt. Here's, a, here's the, one of the best lessons I learned from one of my younger brothers um, at the academy. Um, the, one of the lessons I take with me forever and this lesson made me, I wish I had, he had I had talked to him before I had that situation with that young man. I don't know if I would have handled it much better, but I've definitely processed this information for any level of consciousness that you may think you have. It could be related to, obviously, what we're talking about today, but this applies in all areas of your life as far as getting information and knowledge of something and you want to share it with others or you want to help others with it. Um, here's something, speaking of that direct approach, a lesson I learned from a young man. I took it for the rest of my life. He says, brother, I don't care if you, you could be serving me filet mignon, but if you serve it to me on a trash can lid, I'm not eating it. It changed my approach forever. It made me understand that as I got information, the onus is on me to always figure out how to deliver it not on the person who, who I, quote, unquote, think needs it, 
who may or may not be ready for it or based on their experience, even if they're asking for it. And I, a lot of times I've seen this happen where people with the information will get frustrated with and start saying they don't want to know. No, you fail to figure out how to deliver it on a porcelain plate versus the trash can lid you delivered it on. So that was a big lesson for me. All right, we're going to play this um, cut and get kind of get up to date because, again, I think this will uh, give a, a, a little viewpoint of uh, the idea of the struggle even in today's time because it gets us topsy-turvy in, in a sense as a culture. We're not a monolith. Sometimes we're not good at even understanding it for ourselves. When other people outside of the black cultures kind of speak to us as a monolith, we're quick to say we're not. But when we're amongst ourselves and saying, do you relate to the struggle or do you not, we kind of start making ourselves that again. So um, let me hit, I want you to hit this cut from the Just My Three Cents podcast and get both of your thoughts. I see some callers out there. If you're trying to get in a conversation, you do have to press one to join the conversation. All right, so let me play this cut and get your thoughts. We'll start with you, Emil, coming out of this cut. Juneteenth red velvet cake ice cream. Um, I personally have never had the ice cream. It sounds delicious. Sounds amazing. I didn't get to try it because there was a small group of people who were not included in the celebration of Juneteenth that were upset about it. I guarantee you. Because black folks have been, uh, been upset about a lot of things for a long time and ain't nothing changed. So as soon as you're mad about some ice cream, now you want to change stuff. We've been working for 150 years to get lynching laws changed and ain't nothing happened. Put the ice cream back in the store. Ain't nobody asked for that. And you know, but you know what? I'm going to tell you something that's crazy. I got into it with a whole bunch of people because I had my same, the same views that you had. I wasn't mad at the ice cream. I'm like, red velvet and cheesecake. I love red velvet, red velvet cheesecake. And what, 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 watermelon and fried chicken? Yeah, I'm like, it's my right? And so it was a lot of black people because I hang around a lot of people who are in different, you know, um, yeah. groups and things like that and people that, you know, actually practice Juneteenth. So they were like, Oh, they're trying to capitalize um, off of um, Juneteenth. Look at this. They're trying to commercialize commercialize it and capitalize off of it. Somebody fought for it to be a national holiday. So as every Mm -hmm. holiday that comes about, even pride, those very same people that were getting mad about the Juneteenth ice cream are the same people who will get mad about everything is labeled pride now because it's pride month. Exactly. Trying to push an agenda. But exactly. And that, doing the Juneteenth thing. And and that and that was my, my my whole point, right? And so I had I had to, to pull in um and this is gonna be an offensive comment, but I don't mean offensive, we gotta use context. So I had to pull in the gays and my argument and some of the gays were upset about it. But pride is a perfect example uh, commercial commercialization, um, helping out with rights, helping out with um, being visible, helping out with having your voices heard, right? Because you go on anything, you go on TV right now, and you pull up Roku, or you pull up Paramount Plus, Disney, what? You got rainbows everywhere. My son yeah. loves rainbows. His favorite month is June because of rainbows. He does not know what it stands for, but he knows that June is rainbows. That's all he cares about. So, and it's like in June, there are a lot of uh, legislation, legislative talks as well because of the commercialization of 
pride and the pride flag mm-hmm. and even people not even knowing what pride stands for, what pride means. Um, I was like in gay straight alliance in high school and I had a whole thing. And so I'm not a, I'm not a member of the, the LBGT part. I'm like the A plus part. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like on the end. Right. And so and so um, people not even know what pride means. They know that it's for gay people to have voices. Right. And that that is what it's for. The ice cream really wasn't all that deep. I was just I was just upset that there was a lady who was telling me I shouldn't like the ice cream. But um, there's a lot of Juneteenth things out there, Uh, even like a Michael's, uh, the the Dollar Tree still, they, they got a lot of craft things going on. You got kente cloths going about. Now, what I don't like about Juneteenth and I, what I don't like about the commercialization of it is that they are infringing on people's trademarks and they are not paying um, black creators and they're not paying, you know, um, certain people and right. certain companies that are black run, that are, you know, black Texas oh, wow. run as well. And so I don't like that part of it, but I feel like when things are commercialized and things are more popular, then those people that those holidays represent now can have a voice. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Soccer Team Special Guest Co-host, Oshun Ojo, and Special Guest Emil. Emil, your thoughts, brother, um, to this hearing uh, I hope you can see. I, I feel like the, the context of that conversation from one of our previous shows fits today because it's almost like we're torn between how we should react. Uh, we, we, we're mad that they commercialized Juneteenth or, or no, it was just ours. And so it's like that dialogue, I think, is a waste of time to ever be mad about holidays, if you will, personally. But do you do you have do you have the show in the background? Or is that you? Somebody else? I don't know. No, I, 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 I was listening. Okay, I think it's you, Oshun. I'll just let you know. I'll get the feedback. Just let you know. No, nope, right, not me. I'm on mute and I only have one phone on. Okay, yeah, I don't know why I'm getting that tonight, today. It happens, I guess, from time to time. All right, go ahead, uh, Amir. Hold on, I may have just unmuted. I think I just unmuted you. Sorry about that. All right, Amir, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. Yeah, she said a lot, and I'm going to I'm going to focus on one specific element of that. Juneteenth is a holiday that celebrates something that happened in 1865, which is very important. The problem is that we as a people have been asking for things that are not a holiday, that are much more substantive, that did not get done before the holiday did. So, yes, every argument she made after that is legit. Um, I don't, I totally don't agree with the commercialization that happened last year, but this is America. They're going to commercialize everything they possibly can unless a group is organized enough to prevent it. Um, and there are several ethnic groups and, and cultural groups that have made sure that their important days are not overly commercialized. But that's beside the point. The point is that the underlying problem, which she began to address at the end of her conversation, is that there are some issues that go unresolved in our community by the government that has the power to make some changes. And one of those is the effect, the economic effect of black creators not getting the proper due and having the ability to enforce their their marks and patents um, and intellectual property in court because of their uh, historical experience. It's not to say that they can't, but that they don't have the means to or that there's a systemic way that they're denied the ability to enforce their intellectual property rights. Having said that, our job is to begin to expand 
fact that the resistance we feel within our culture about certain activities has a historical context that is yet unresolved. We just have a lot of stuff that we haven't yet dealt with, with the majority community and within our own community. And because that tension is still there, we have this multifaceted approach to Juneteenth. Some people are like, of, of course, yeah, the commercialization is going to be there, and we should want the ice cream. It's delicious. The other people say, what about the intellectual property rights of some, some majority corporation that's not even black owning the, the mark to Juneteenth itself, which was crazy. And then on top of that, we have yet another example of us fighting within, talking about should we even have a Juneteenth within, like should people from Oregon celebrate Juneteenth, black people from Oregon celebrate Juneteenth, or should it only be people from Texas, Louisiana? All of that is packed into her conversation, none of which was easily unpacked in, a, in that short time that she was speaking, but more importantly, it exposes how we are not a monolith and therefore have to look at every one of these issues with a, with a critical lens to understand what's the ultimate effect that we need in order to feel free and independent as people in America. And, and her conversation began to allude to that at the very end, but there is so much more that she could have said, so much more that should be said that has nothing to do with whether or not the actual holiday itself, which was not wanted by any of us. None of us were like, 10 years ago saying right. lobbying for Juneteenth is a federal holiday. So it's, it's, it's kind of a red herring in that way. Yeah, let me say this. I got to go to a break and I got a caller coming after the break. So I'll just say this very briefly. Of all those kind of three different issues you laid out, the latter one I think relates to the show the most, the infighting within ourselves. And we can infight to the point where we're dismissive of one another because you don't think as I think. So it kind of keeps alluding to that that monolith, and it's almost like if we're going to have infighting over something like that, I even see that as an idea of you don't understand the struggle. Like I, that dialogue is what is there quite often when we're like, it should, it should be celebrated. It shouldn't be celebrated. And the thing I do agree with, with the young ladies that were on that show is just the idea of even commercialization and making it a national holiday can lead to better conversations, inform more people, and even the dialogue of black creators not being supported now has to be dealt with now that it's commercialized. You have to, we have to legally figure out to make sure they get supported. No surprise if they're um, infringing on trademark, trademark. We shouldn't be surprised by how anybody acts, right? We should be surprised any longer, uh, but it doesn't, in my opinion, it shouldn't be an argument amongst ourselves to divide ourselves over whether it happens or not. We'll, we'll play this break and we'll come to the caller after this break. All I ask is that you think. If you're looking to purchase or sell a home in Atlanta's competitive real estate market, there's only one real estate agent we call on, Ephraim Abdullah. Not only is he honest and straightforward, but he has a proven, repeatable strategy that consistently gets his clients the homes they wanted versus their second or third choice. What's Elfram's secret? His virtual on-the-spot offer moves his clients to the front of the line for purchases and for sales. His no-nonsense approach gets your home sold and off the market. For a results-oriented real estate experience, contact Elfram Abdullah, a licensed agent powered by EXP Realty at 770-800-7922. Again, that number is 770-800-7922.
This here ain't easy, man. This living is a constant challenge. This blackness is beautiful. It's a shame. I can only go to the mirror to see it's a fact that a sexual assault case doesn't prevent you from the presidency. White privilege. The fact that I even have a job and health coverage at the same damn time, black privilege. My bruises look like I bite my tongue so hard last night I almost swallowed it. Look like my hands stay at 10 and 2. I make no sudden movements. My bruises look like Sandra Bland. Like the police can turn my eulogy into a suicide note. Look like the state of Texas rewriting history to call slaves workers and the slave trade a migration riddle. What is another word for a black family reunion? A graveyard. I am always the butt of all jokes. The fact that you got something to laugh about, white privilege. The fact that I got something to smile about, black privilege. You ask me what my bruises look like. The fact that you don't see the irony, white privilege. The fact that I'm standing here is the evidence, black privilege. Because if a black body ain't the most obvious example of scarring and healing, then truly, I can't tell you what it is. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Soccer Teeth, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo. Our special guest is Emil Bryant for this morning's discussion question. Do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? We have a caller that wants to get in. If you want to be like this caller, call 646-787-1691 and press 1 to let us know you want to speak. For the other callers out there, if you're just listening, no problem. If you want to speak, you do have to press 1. Area code 678-3927. Give us your name, where you're calling from, and your three cents on this morning's discussion. Black African Power Montoya, brother, Unc, man, calling from Atlanta. What's good, man? Uh, everything good. What you got for us, King? Yeah, so I'm um, uh, kind of tapped in when they uh, when the lady was talking about Jim T. And basically, how we're kind of separated on the, the uh, thing being commercialized and all that. But in reality, resources is what the African American has to learn how to covet. So anything being commercialized is always working in our favor. We just have to take advantage of it. As a matter of fact, uh, the first people on planet Earth that commercialized holidays was the African on an African uh, savanna where they had festivals. And at these festivals, there were great marketplaces where commerce and business was taking place. So, uh, like you said, anytime something's commercialized, it opens it up to the whole planet Earth. We just got to be African-American and just take advantage of that. Now, whether you like it or not, that's another thing. But those businesses that are stimulated, African-American businesses that are stimulated, man, we're going to deal with Christmas. We're going to deal with Thanksgiving. We're going to deal with Juneteenth. We're going to deal with all that. As a businessman, I got to... I got to take advantage of these business days. So I think the argument, you know, it's just an argument within the community, but in reality, it's always about resources and your social understanding of those conditions. Uh, I like that thought. Oh, show any thoughts to what um, Brother Aunt brought to the table? Um, yeah, a lot of thoughts. Um, the whole conversation around the commercialization of Juneteenth, I think, was indicative of just where we are. Again, I said earlier that. We can't really talk about how we fail to acknowledge our trauma and heal from it because we've been in the place of survival. Really, when you think about it, even though black people are an ancient people in this country, we're still like adolescents, and we're learning and figuring things out. Um, and so I give grace when we're having these discussions and we're talking about what, you know, capitalism and what should be commercialized off of and whether or not we benefit from it because we're trying to figure things out. 
Um, so I think there's space for all of that in these conversations. Um, and, and as the brother said, we're not a monolith, and we need all, all types. We need all of it. We need the capitalists. We need the socialists. We need the people who are, um, are talking about free enterprise. And we need all of that. Um, I'm, just, I'm just excited that we're even having the discussions at all because before it wasn't a discussion at all. So the fact that we're having these discussions I think is indicative of growth. Well, fair enough, fair enough. I definitely respect that. So let me go a couple of places here. I'm going to keep Brother Uncle on just in case he gets a second to jump in to somebody else maybe calls in. Again, you have to press one if you want to speak. So here's something I want to kind of deal with earlier. I'm going to try to bring it in right now um, before Emil goes. I just want to hear his thoughts on this. So when we think of the struggle from a historical perspective, we have these huge figures that we respect historically, right? Marcus Garvey, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. And so here's an aspect that I wanted to just kind of get y'all thoughts on. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm being devil's advocate to a degree, but some of this is uh, how I sincerely feel as well. And so Mark, Malcolm X is my absolute hero. I've read like 16 books on Malcolm, right? That's my hero. Um, I grew up in the South, so Martin was in a sense my hero before I learned of Malcolm because growing up in the South, I had never heard of Malcolm until I came across Malcolm's book in, you know, in the seventh, my, going into my eighth grade summer, really. And so that book changed my life. But I'm highlighting these huge figures because when we think of the African-American struggle, we have a viewpoint that I think no longer serves us because of how Martin and Malcolm did it. For example, being two of the biggest figures, not the only ones, but two of the biggest figures that we relate to the most in the African-American community. And so due to their model, there's an aspect, in my opinion, of where as a culture to a degree, we, we, we still look for a similar model to come along, even though I think we would all agree, in a sense, no one has came along since the two of them, in a sense, to replace them. And so some of our struggle, in my opinion, has been related to looking for an outdated model that no longer applies. And so here's a concept that I, I kind of create. I think Brother Uncle's heard this before, but I say perpetual struggle is a hustle. So perpetual struggle is a hustle. And so now, in my opinion, we have people who figuratively try to become those figures, but they're pushing an agenda that's not real progress. It's paying on our heartstrings and our relationship to struggles and our idea of looking for a um, a, 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 a strong leader, a, a, a um, What's the word I'm looking for? Looking for a um, savior, if you will. Like that model, we've stuck with it so long, we've allowed people to lead us astray and not focus on resources, as Brother Unk has mentioned. Emil, your thoughts are where I'm going, because I know I got you for about five minutes, but I hope what I'm saying is very relatable and quite often back to the Black Enough Olympics a lot of times, if someone relates to the struggle in a very different way and pursue resources in a way that doesn't seem to fit into the collective and you're not, you're not broke to struggle to prove yourself, then you don't fit in. So that becomes a struggle that we wear as a badge of honor. Your thoughts, Steve? Yeah. The, brother, that was beautiful. The resource struggle is real. Let's go back. Martin and Malcolm were affected by COINTELPRO. We know that. We know that the COINTELPRO's ultimate aim was to destroy the uh, formation of any form of black messiah. That program didn't end until the 70s. So we have a 50-year program, not 50, but about a 40-year program where 
black people were monitored, their thoughts were shaped. The FBI was reading every black Renaissance writer, black Harlem Renaissance writer. They were monitoring their behavior. They were actually shaping their behavior. So our greatest thinkers and the thoughts that they shared with us were actually shaped by the FBI. We have history when it comes to black saviors, when it comes to black Messiah figures. So for us to look for one isn't unnatural in that we were supposed to have had one there whose lives were unnaturally cut short, and the environment that would create another one was unnaturally shaped by outside forces from our community. Having said all that, the evolution is we have the history of COINTELPRO to rely on, which means we can no longer look for one messianic figure. We have to start thinking about what are the tools, what are the resources, what are the elements of liberation versus the individual who will galvanize us toward liberation. And that is an ongoing struggle in our community because we're still looking for that one figure versus looking at all the different ways that we can liberate ourselves, whether it's culturally, economically, financially, um, in terms of how we raise our families, all of these different factors, which to uh, Oshun's point earlier, that information is available to us, but we have a lot of static that we have to get through within our community as to what is a solution for our freedom. And we don't have that solution. We don't have a, this, a healthy discussion within our community to establish what freedom looks like, feels like, sounds like, such that we can all pursue it either individually or as a culture. We don't have those discussions. We have reasons for that. And one of the challenges that I hear in any of these discussions, the one that you're sparking today, Montoya, is that our culture is still being attacked, this time from forces that are not as organized as COINTELPRO, but that attack is still ongoing, which scrambles the conversation from the outset. So we're still not addressing the fundamental reason why we can't get ourselves together because we're still not defending ourselves from the multitude of attacks that traumatize us over and over again, hence the struggle within our community to define ourselves and define freedom for ourselves. Or what I always offer, and I'm not saying I have this exactly right, versus I'm not so much into the attack mode now because, as we've mentioned, as organized as it was, I think what we're seeing is the remnants of how effective the attack at that time was, and we're living out the narratives to a degree on our own, as you said. Makes sense that we would look to that. It's time, in a sense, for us to, in my opinion, wake up to see that's not necessary, and I will offer the attacks are not as strong when you realize, okay, we don't need a Messiah, if you will. There's these other opportunities, and a lot of times we get lost, in my opinion, in perpetual struggle, thinking that's what it looks like when the answers are uh, there and available. We got about one minute um, before the top of the hour. Uh, real quick before I get Brother Unks and Oshun's thoughts on the email, um, if you will, tell people about this play that you're working on just so that they can kind of be looking out for it when you start marketing it. Because um, I know you only have you got another call to go to. So if you can get that out, got about a minute or however long, you know, you need to get that information out. But share people. Um, how to stay in contact with you about your play, and thank you for being on this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure, Montoya. Uh, people can go to my website, www.emilbryant.com. That's E-M-I-L-L-E-B-R-Y-A-N-T. You can learn more about me and what I do as an author, as a speaker and thinker. Uh, I'm a consultant as well. This is what um, empowered me 
to uh, write. Now, I'm the co-author. The author uh, and I are, uh, she is Dr. Gladys Akuna. She's a Nigerian visiting professor here in the United States, and she her um, specialty is in dance movement therapy. She's healing mental trauma through natural African movements, movements that are endemic to our cultures, especially Western Africa, especially she's the Igbo, so she's actually using the, cult, the cultural movement dance from her nation and her, um, her culture, specifically Igbo, to uh, help articulate some of the trauma and help us get past it and heal. In the light of that healing, she saw a bridge between America and the U.S., and so we wrote a play together called Hela Adadevo, Return of the Goddess, which talks about uh, Henrietta Lacks and Dr. Adadevo out of Nigeria and how these two women remind us that the earth and all of the things uh, abundant therein are part of our natural growth as black people in America and how we can use that, leverage that to become um, healers ourselves and to heal ourselves. That play is for high school and college-age students that allows them to begin to see those two women in a different light and integrate their healing of the world in ways that most people have never experienced and therefore begin to connect not only Nigeria and the U.S., not only women to themselves, but all of us back to the natural state of our creation and bring us into a holistic view of ourselves. So that play was something that I uh, cherish. Uh, it's about to be published in Nigeria, and we're looking at uh, publishing in the U.K. and the U.S. next. And there's a lot of colleges that are already on board to teach it. So it's really exciting to be a part of something so special as being able to help um, craft a play like Helena Adedeva, Return of the Goddess. Love it. EmilBryant.com. EmilBryant.com. We are at the top of the hour. Very interested in Oshun and Unk's brother Unk's thoughts coming out of a break. Thank you, King, for being with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Mr. Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Hey, where did you get that hat and T-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at MoneyMotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes, and I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit, and what I like the most, it's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made $0 an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. Everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk, talk. They still know it's me. Because I look like money. Smell like money. Talk like money. Even walk like money. True Seekers, please understand, Mental Dialogue is much more than just a talk show. Each and every Saturday, we communicate with you for two reasons, to dialogue and connect. On the dialogue side, we cater to you intellectual outcasts who feel you have no place for honest discourse on race, sex, culture, and African-American business. 
On the Connect side, we've created a community where you can connect with experts specifically in finance, whether personal or business, and mental health, whether it's trauma or to optimize performance, along with all the other skill sets from other MD community members. Our mission was to create a virtual nationwide neighborhood where African Americans learn to trade ideas, goods, and services through social media, meetup, and this podcast. To become a neighbor of the Mental Dialogue Community Club, please visit us at mentaldialogue.com. We are better with you than we are without you. We can be neighbors even though we don't live next to each other. Hashtag raise the culture. Cause all we care about is hairstyles and tennis shoes And if you step on mine, you push the button Cause I'll beat you down like it ain't nothing Just like a beast But I'm the first nigga to holler around Peace, black man I need man. my wife and children to a pope When I get drunk and smoke, don't Got a bad heart condition Still eat hawk nogs and chitlins Spent my money on the dice or the horses jobless So I'm a hope for the armed forces Go to church, but they tease us With a picture of a blue-eyed Jesus Call me Negro. After all this time, I'm still busting up the chivalry. No respect to ignore And I'm having more babies than I really can afford. In jail because I can't pay the mother. Held back in life because I'm a color. Now this is just a little summary of us. But y'all think it's some of me? To hold a mirror to your face, but trust. Nobody gives a fuck about Welcome back to the Venture Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host. Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo. This morning's discussion question, do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor, as we hear a cut from Ice Cube's death certificate? So people may not be familiar with that song, but it was a song called Us years ago. feel like it could be written for today, in my opinion, to a degree. And again, this is not simply judgment. It's just a dialogue of how we relate to struggle in a way that may be unhealthy. And the quote that I love to use is, perpetual struggle is a hustle. Your thoughts, Oshun, I've said a lot, but specifically to that quote and how it relates to how we, in a sense, in my opinion, could move past it if we think it's necessary. I know it's, you know, I'm not saying that it's, I, I may not, you know, again, this is my opinion, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily need to move past, in a sense, how we see struggle. But I would offer that it hurts us when we get bogged down on models that are not going to be effective, like the old Messiah model that, as Emil beautifully laid out, was taken from us strategically. And sometimes we still look to it, in, in, in my opinion, to, a, to, a, to an extent where now, since we don't have that, we're kind of astray and have no direction, in my opinion. Your thoughts, Queen? Yeah, you, you brother said a mouthful um, on leadership. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, the Messiah model um, that we have coined it as um, was necessary at the time. And one of the reasons why it was necessary is because of the state that we were in and also because of our religious reference. Uh, black people are a very spiritual people. Um, we embrace Christianity and whatever other uh, religion that we practice, and especially in the monotheistic religions, um, saviorism is a you know pro- a prophet or a savior is um, is the model. And so that was also it wasn't just I don't think it was just um, the CIA. I think it was a product. Our our vision of how we would get free 
um, and, and our reliance on a Savior came directly from our life experiences and from our religious attachments. Um, that said, I think people are evolving away from that. So not only do we not need that because we've, we've evolved in our, um, in our culture away from that, but also um, that we come to understand what one of you said, I can't remember which one of you said, which is that um, we are in a position now where we don't need a strong leader. Someone said, and I can't remember exactly who it was, a book that I read, a sister, she said, um, strong people don't need strong leaders. And, it's because, and we know that. We know that in the workplace. We know it in, in all kinds of places. But we are stuck in this higher, this cultural hierarchy of, you know, having a figurehead or a person who is the authority when we are, um, we are evolving to a place where we understand that what we need are people who are leaderful. We don't need one leader. We need people who are able to be, who are adequate leaders for themselves. Um, and then we all work together in cohesion. I think that's a very important, important to, um, note to make because, my experience in grassroots um, organization is that people are still looking for that. Black people really respond to people who are charismatic and well-spoken. And that, I'm not going to drop any names, but you know who I'm <laughs> talking about. And people, people have the ability to come to us and sound good and galvanize people and produce nothing. Um, so that type of saviorism we know from religion and we know from our uh, cultural experience that it really produces very little. Um, no disrespect to our, our um our elders of the past, who didn't make a lot of headway for us, but we've evolved away from that. And I'm so happy to see this, this discussion because um, it is something that is, it has us in a chokehold. It's very stifling that black people want to have someone, particularly a male, black male voice, because men have, black men have been so disenfranchised and been so oppressed that we want to put black men on a pedestal and we need to see a black man in that position. Um, and so because of that, I believe we have been stifled. So I, I really appreciate that commentary around that, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and knowing that other people feel that way and see that evolution away from saviorism. Um, yeah, regarding yeah. struggle uh -huh. being a bad, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please, please finish. I thought you were finished. Please finish. Please finish. Okay. Regarding struggle being a badge of honor, um, I think that you're absolutely correct, and I've been guilty of it as well. But, you know, Montoya, what you don't know is that over our last few conversations, you've corrected me a few times in the language that I've used that has been struggle. Um, I didn't even realize that I was using it. And I think it's really important to, um, to see, to evolve away from that. We needed that. That's the thing that people don't understand. We kind of villainize a certain thought process like, oh, we, we are stuck in the struggle mentality. But, there, you know, when someone, when someone stabs you, and you have a wound, you don't just take the knife out and heal. So it takes them one second to stab you. It might take years for you to heal that wound, and the scar is still ever-present. Um, so we need to think about these things are the natural evolution in the way that people heal. It's not that we are being stuck. Um, we need, and, yes, we need to move forward, but the, the uh, focusing on the struggle was necessary in that time in the same way that saviorism was necessary in that time. Now we're moving along. Um, and so these these discussions are necessary. Yeah. So what happens is you're absolutely right. So even talking about it, it was definitely no knock on historically because it was like you said absolutely necessary at that time. And the context of today is where I'm challenging it for the reasons that you just talked about is opening up and planting the seed that if you're in a space where the charismatic leader can still capture you and you get behind them. As you said, and ultimately they're producing nothing because hint, hint, perpetual struggle is a hustle. So that that's the seed 
because as you just mentioned, in today's time, there's a stranglehold collectively in even desiring that. While we all agree we get where it comes from, this is to see, to say, hey, y'all, that's not necessary, and nor does it lead to anything. Brother Ankh, your thoughts, King. Hold on, let me bring you live. All right, go ahead, King. Oh, man, interesting. So terms like um, Messiah, struggle, um, lack of freedom, and bondage, you know, that's like the Hebrew Israelite thing. We need our freedom is like a black African, my fault, the black power type of movement, the black organization, grassroots, uh, savior, these things. Okay, these things run hand in hand because you need a savior when you're economically downtrodden because the savior is supposed to come through and put you back on top of your economics because the savior is also supposed to come through and relieve you of the military struggle because you're under a yoke of a certain power. So the Savior does these things and motivates you and puts you in that position. So if you think you're in that position at all times, you'll never change. A great example is the Roman Empire. They went to the British Isles. Okay, they went to Britannica. Okay, they went to Germanica. And they fought these tribes that lived in the forests. And out of these tribes, Messiah's rose. So it's not exactly a religious thing. It's really a, a position where people need great leaders to rise up to help them militarily and help them economically, these things go hand in hand. So when black people stay on that course, it's outright dangerous. So Brittany Griner, when she comes back to the United States, she's going to know that she's goddamn free. She's going to know the difference between being in Russia and being in the United States. She's going to recognize her freedom. We've been free for so long that we end the freedom and don't even realize we're free. That's the problem. So I like to use terms like space-age African. A space-age African or a space-age African-American recognizes freedom and want to take full advantage of it, whether it be through voting, whether it be on stock, Bitcoin, just taking advantage of everything around us as African-Americans that the Messiah that uh, uh, Malcolm X was or, or, or you know, our, our favorite, Martin Luther King, right? They did what they were supposed to do. Man, we got to stay on that path. So for me, when I hear the struggle culture, that's, I'm on the bottom now, I'm here. All that kills us dead. Man, look, we got our freedom, and as African-Americans, as space-age Africans, we got to take advantage of that. We're not stone-age Africans anymore. We focus too much time on our hunter-gatherer stages in the stone ages. We focus on our successes in the stone ages. But now the world we live in, although we were rulers of the stone age, the world we live in is the space age. Now the African-American has to become the rulers of the space age. I love the thoughts. Here's a perfect way to close out this segment. We're going to go to another break. And it comes, this thought comes from a brother I follow named Eli Marcus. And he wrote this in his amazing book called Secure the Throne. And it literally fits right on the head. You know, it's like perfect timing for you to come in and say what you just said. But he literally said this in his book. And I kept this quote out of the book. And it says, if throwing a spear during a war makes you feel more African, than shooting a gun, then you are foolish and will die. We'll be right back to listen to the Mr. Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. Do you need marketing designed specifically to compete in today's digital age? Well, look no further than Emoridge Digital Business Solutions. 
a marketing agency that's well equipped to provide solutions to the challenges faced by businesses looking to acquire and retain customers in today's ultra-competitive marketing world. Whether it's video creation, website or logo design, mobile app development, social media and email marketing, or e-commerce design and development, Emores Digital Business Solutions has the answer. Visit them at EmoresDBS.com. That's E-M-O-R-E-J-D-B-S dot com. Or call 864-221-3632. That's 864-221-3632. Emores Digital Business Solutions. We're the solution to your marketing challenges. Regardless of what your textbooks that taught to your teachers and told you, America's never settled the Civil War. Yeah, we ended the bloody battle. The bottom line, that beef is still there. That's why 150 years later, there's still tension in the air. Like an unhappy marriage with a couple was forced to stay together simply because the children were there. But if you sit back and do an objective analysis of the American social fabric, you will see that the racial dynamics have shifted very little. I mean, to this day, you still got white liberals, white bigots, white guilt in white privilege and an educated black middle class who struggles with racial identity. Because without that attachment to middle class and Jim Crow, you don't got much in common with the common Negro no more. And for that, you feel guilty to connect with your people. You buy into the narrative that America's still 1960 Mississippi, but slavery and segregation was ages ago. So now the new Jim Crow is income and zip code. Gang colors in corners. We say Black Lives Matter, but nobody's even asking what exactly is Larry Hoover's influence on the black underclass, also known as the niggas. Because with the exception of the Mexicans, everybody else is scared of niggas. And that includes the white liberals, the white bigots, and particularly the educated black middle class. That's why your club flyers read, no hoodies, white tees, no stickers, no jeans. And you need to pull your pants up, you want to party with me. This party right here is only for the ground and sexy. Until a nigga get shot by the cops, not a boozy nigga want to rock a hoodie to the march. And that's right when the white liberal white guilt kicks in. Because you don't want to be connected to the white bigots. And the white bigots don't admit white privilege. That's because half of just poor white trash. Which means you're nothing more than just niggas with privilege. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo. Still have Brother Unk on the line with us as well. As you just hear a cut from one of my favorite spoken word artists, Tommy Bottoms, as it gets, as he speaks more in the dialogue between, in a sense, uh, black people within ourselves and that piece, if you were able to hear it clearly, where he just talks about attempting to relate to the struggle, even if you, in a sense, have been quote-unquote privileged, even as a black person, if you will, but we attempt to relate to the struggle, but in so many ways, uh, we don't want to connect to each other for various reasons, and again, quite often, we judge one another on those scales. Um, any thoughts to that cut? Anything that stands out to you? Um, Oshun, just want to you know, just continue this dialogue again, a, a much needed dialogue, because I don't know that, you know, we 
we peeled this back enough. We just kind of accepted it, fall into our corners versus our hope to move past even doing that and getting away from the monolith and accepting people no matter their position. That's the effort, and no group moves as a collective anyway. That's a myth in itself, in my opinion. I know I'm saying a lot here, but just your thoughts, Queen. Um, the year was nine, uh, 2001, I'm going to say 2001, and I was in the Apache Cafe, and Tommy Bottoms was the man at Apache Cafe in 1991 in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm so excited to hear that he's still doing his work. How old is that piece? Do you know Montoya? Um, it's probably a decade now, maybe a little less than a decade. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, uh, if I had to guess. I also yeah, wonder what he's doing. No, no, yeah, he was uh, he was at my, uh, my last live event. We've only had three live events since the pandemic, and Tommy, he's still in Atlanta. Uh, he um he, he still writes pieces every now and then. They're always over the top, amazing when he does it. Uh, he, but yeah, he's still doing his thing. I was hoping he would call in today, um, but he might be busy. But go ahead, Queen. I said 1991. I'm old. It was 2001. I'm 10 years before. It was 2001. But anyway, um yeah a lot to be said there. i think that someone alluded to it but we haven't really talked about it the fact that um struggle, being in struggle is um is addictive it's it's not only um um it makes money for people you know but also it it's also very addictive for us to do that and it some a brother said something that reminded me about the the um the political lines that are in most grassroots organizations we say things to each other like the struggle continues and things like that. Everything that we say is based on being um, in a position of um, struggle because we do understand that we're at war and we're, we're fighting a battle. But I think the way that we think about that has has definitive impacts on the outcomes. Um, let me jump I was in part right of a study. Let me, let me I'm jump sorry, in go right ahead. Here. Go ahead. No, 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 I'm jumping in intentionally, so I'm cutting you off because I want to take advantage of something. Unk heard me do this before, and I think it's a perfect timing. Again, I don't even – I hate the at-war concept. But it ain't just about me personally hating it. It's it's buried in the same language that you're smartly saying, hey, let's watch our language. And I'm telling you, even at war is struggle language that does not apply. And I'll explain how briefly. I won't give you the long version. I have heard the full version. But I put up this post a little while back, and it's just because you use that term, at war. And I, so I'll say this just to kind of try to make it make sense in a quick second. So to a degree, the way that we mention at war is as if at war from the struggle concept that we say it at, but it's almost like you take World War II and we were battling Germany, right? As a, you know, whatever, in World War II, we were battling Germany and that was an actual war. And then after the war, Russia, who was quote unquote an ally, we got into a cold war with Russia. Those style of wars are completely different. We don't shoot any missiles at Russia. The Russia don't shoot any missiles at us, although there's been all types of threats along the way. And quote unquote, America won the cold war. I'm bringing this analogy to say this: those the actual war versus the tactics of a cold war are vastly different. And I would offer that when we use the term at war, we have not conceptualized the tactics of what today's time looks like. And we use it as if, to continue with my analogy, as if we're still shooting bullets at each other 
in the actual World War II versus graduating to the conversation that we're having now, which is what tactics are necessary now. We're having that conversation. So I hate the we're at war because there was a concerted attack that no that, that was so effective. The narratives have stayed alive. I don't know that the attacks are as active or as conscious as they used to be in a country in which they could blatantly do what the hell they wanted to do. So that's why the, the attacks were so blatant. And what happens now is we give power to a group that ain't even there and keep talking about they who are not as smart as we try to make them out to be. I know I said a lot there, but I just wanted to jump on that at war comment. Go ahead and jump in. Give your push back. Let's start dialogue about it. I'm going to bring Brother Aunt back in here as well. Go ahead, Queen. Um, yeah, I think that's up for further discussion. Because I feel like um, the word war does not mean does not um, denote or assume active battle and, and bullets being shot. No, I'm not, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you meant it like that. I want to be clear. I just use that analogy. I just use that analogy. So I know you're not talking about we're fighting a battle. I'm talking about the way we're using it. I'm alluding it to the difference between an actual war and a cold war. So I'm trying to be clear in the analogy. I'm not there saying we think we're out here fighting a war with bullets. So I'm not. I, I, I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. But go ahead. Yeah. So an actual war and a cold war are both war. And the reason why I'm steadfast about that is because I feel like um, many times we're complacent. And um, although it is important for us to upgrade the way that we think, you know, in, in, regards, to, into, into, in regards to what we're actually dealing with, um, I feel like the majority of the time, um, you know, a war is between two people who are battling. But it's not a war because one side is getting their ass kicked. One side of them is doing whatever they want to do and the other side is just laying down. So in that in that example, I would say you're right, it's not a war, but I think we need to be um, – I think that when we talk about how far we've come and how, how many – how much we have access to resources and all the things that we can do in the future, it's all absolutely correct. But also, we cannot minimize um, the, um, the objection that we're going to face, the resistance that we're going to face, the resistance that we are facing for normal everyday things in this society. So maybe um, I'm open to, you know, changing my, my vocabulary around the use of the word war, but I think we all get the point of what I'm saying is that someone is, some, some entity and some system is going to be actively opposing it because our freedom is indicative of, our autonomy is indicative of that system's demise that was built on our enslavement. So, yeah, we, we're battling something. So, so, so yeah, it is. So, yeah, it's just the, it's the language, and I'm just talking about it from a language standpoint. So when you threw out a hey, one side getting their ass kicked versus, you know, one get whatever, and I'm saying, so we, when we use the term, we're, we're in that space, you, 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 if, if, if that makes sense. And so, so the idea is to move out of that space and actively play the current game that's being played. And sometimes we have – trouble thinking of that because we're so focused on saying the way we're at war is a outdated way. Does that make sense? So it's just like, so, so I'm not saying that the new way is that we're not quote unquote, you, the fight for resources has always been what it is. That's what humans do. And so the fight resources can play out via race. They can play out via class. They can play out via various ways. Obviously in this country, because of his background, 
it is played out very heavily from a racial standpoint. So I'm not, what I am not saying, I think, and I think we're on the same page here if you hear me clearly. So what I'm not saying is not that there isn't something that will, make keep, that will keep you, in a sense, for chasing the resources. I am highlighting that we say it in an outdated way in a, in, it, that does not move us to the level of thinking to play today's game. Uh, Aunt, Brother Aunt, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, so the term, I get it. But the reality is the real struggle and the real battle and the real war is within. And it's always been that with homo sapiens sapiens. That is the struggle, not the outside thing. It's the thing that you fight within. So a group of people or a group of organisms that can balance their emotions, that can balance their reality will always dominate a group that's all over the damn place. So the, the, the reality of the war is even in uh, what you would say religious texts, right? Since I'm not a spiritual person, people would say, well, the spirituality, low here, low there, the kingdom of heaven is within. So that battles they're talking about is between heaven and hell, but it's, it's inside you. So, so, so the problem is we're not, we're not dealing with one of our ancient terms. It's called mayat, and that's simply the battle and the struggle of the human moral character that occurs within you. So, so the outside forces, no matter how strong they are, if we can balance and measure our inner struggle as African-Americans, that's when we pass the test. So it's the inward struggle. The war has never been outside of us. It's all, so, so basically, you can be a person who no, no longer use drugs, right, because you have settled that struggle within and you'll find out whether you've settled that struggle within because you can be in a bar, right, or a shooting gallery, and you don't use drugs or you don't drink. That means you have balanced that struggle within you. Remember, it's always it starts within, right, and then the symptoms show on the outside. So we need to learn how to measure and balance who we are from within. And this, this occurs in all human beings. I love it. We're actually up against the break. I'm sure I definitely want to hear your thoughts to that. Uh, I'm going to play another cut um, after this commercial as well that we can dialogue about and add to this conversation. If you're online and want to get in, 646-787-1691. Press 1 to let us know you want to speak. Again, that's 646-787-1691. We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. If you're looking to purchase or sell a home in Atlanta's competitive real estate market, there's only one real estate agent we call on, Ephraim Abdullah. Not only is he honest and straightforward, but he has a proven, repeatable strategy that consistently gets his clients the homes they wanted versus their second or third choice. What's Ephraim's secret? His virtual on-the-spot offer moves his clients to the front of the line for purchases and for sales. His no-nonsense approach gets your home sold and off the market. For a results-oriented real estate experience, contact Ephraim Abdullah, a licensed agent powered by EXP Realty at 770-800-7922. Again, that number is 770-800-7922. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. Again, I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Oshun Ojo. This morning's discussion question, do black people wear struggle like a badge of honor? 
So, Shun, I wanted to definitely give you an opportunity to kind of speak to what myself and um, Brother Unk said. Hopefully you were catching it, caught that. But, yeah, go ahead and give, your, give us your thoughts, Queen. Again, it's just um, a, a perspective that um, what I always highlight, and then throw this out as well to kind of add a little more context. So I did a show on the Just My Three Cents podcast, which, by the way, is our live video active podcast on YouTube, the Mental Dialogue YouTube page. And I talked about understanding how race is a social construct. And so what happened is that racial construct, although it's not real scientifically, it's very real from the way it was presented in this country and it has caused um, and, 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 and to this day, it can still be, in a sense, life or death consequences that come from that construct. Unfortunately, the biggest issue with seeing the construct is the idea of um, seeing a, co- a collective. And quite often, when you try to navigate the human experience of getting resources, because of that construct being put on us, we often view other groups in that construct, and the reality is the people that advance, quote unquote, any group, or in my opinion, people that have done have done what Brother Ump just mentioned prior to the break, and done it within a small group and figured out, okay, we're on the same page. We understand the best way to access resources. Uh, and, and balance out what Brother Unk talked about, and it ends up being the way now versus the old model that we've all agreed was very necessary for that time, and if we can move past even looking for that old model and no longer having people hustle, hustle us with perpetual struggle, we can figure this thing out. But when we see it from a collective construct viewpoint, we keep looking for actual war versus moving to the quote-unquote core tactics that are necessary today. Hope I'm hoping I'm making sense with that analogy. Go ahead, Ashwin. Yeah, I think we agree. I, I think we agree. I'm saying the exact same thing that you're saying. It's just that I use the term war. Um, so I'm asking you, um, okay. what do you think, what vernacular do you think should be used? What are you proposing as a our new reality um, that we should use to to describe what is happening to us today. No, I love it. I love it. So, so what happens is the, because the world is becoming global, in my opinion. Well, not my opinion. I mean, obviously the world is becoming global, so that part, not my opinion, but I'm saying. But because of that aspect, the construct of race is going to be less and less vital or necessary as a way to gain resources. Because you know, Dr. Claude Anderson taught us you know, even the concept of race to the new world. And so the United States literally built this entire country off the genocide of the Native Americans and then the enslavement of us. And so this country was built off that backbone. So there's no denying that race, the construct, has played the role that it has. So to answer your question, Oshun, so what happens is when we come to understand that construct and that even that race, Dr. Claude Anderson taught us this, was just a a race for resources. And the best way to do it, unfortunately, at the time for, uh, if you will, Europeans that were conquering this land to actually have a a whole um, 
um, group of people that they could in a get, sense get free labor and help build up this very new country. We all know you, the U.S. is a very small, young country compared to a lot of these countries that have been around for thousands of years. And so even that construct was created for the chase for resources. And so the language now is humans have always put in things in place in order to chase resources. And so now I'm no longer at that type, at, at, at war, if you will, as much as it's mastering the games that are available. And so in the capitalistic society, if you want to master getting resources to have success here, if you want to master resources to get out of the country, because some people take that approach because, unfortunately, that construct doesn't just go away for us, right? Um, and so I think that we can literally move away from the collective construct and literally focus on what's available in a world that's caring less and less about us as an entire group and take advantage of the chase for resources. In my opinion, that's the better language. Your thoughts? Um, do you travel, Montoya? Have you been out of the I country? Have, I, have, I haven't traveled in the last decade, but I've traveled in the past. Okay, where have you been? Um, throughout the Middle East, um, a couple spots in Europe, and then on, on this, on this um, hemisphere, just to the Caribbean and to Canada. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this not as a, um, I'm saying this as a qualifier, not as a disqualifier for you, but a qualifier for me. I'm world-traveled. I've lived all over the world. And there's not been a corner of this earth that I've been in where the social construct of race hasn't been a huge impediment in my dealings in that country. And so while I agree that um, the concept of race is erroneous, and I agree that it, why it was introduced to us, you know, for the sake of capitalism to build on that, I also, and I, I understand that we are probably globally moving away from that. Um, as it stands today, it's still a huge factor. Uh, today, in the Middle East, Africans are still being enslaved. Um, so when we talk about moving away from concepts, I think it's really important to, to, to have that evolution process, but it's also really important to recognize where you are in that process and to relate to people in that way. So while, yes, we should be focused on moving forward and um, talking about our access to resources, acquiring those resources and um, that sort of thing, because even that, Montoya, is, um, is conditional upon um, a system put in place by capitalism, which is also a social construct. Um, so even our desire to acquire resources is not something that is uh, – I don't think that that is something that is um, – inherent to human beings. It's what we have we have accepted because we live in a capitalist society. Um, so, so while ask, we let are... Me, let, me ask, let, me ask, let me ask you about that. So I don't know at any point where, because that's just how you survive as a, as, you know, as a species. So all species inherently require the resources to survive and live. And eventually, as humans, because we have brains, we move to thriving and, you know, now we have buildings to live in versus, so I'm just kind of pointing out, humans have inherently always chased resources, whatever those resources are. Today, we use it in the term of money, but in, from the very beginning of time, humans have always needed, needed resources, and it is, in my opinion, inherent to us. Your thoughts, I just wanted to throw out, because we kind of take it to that context, 
What do you think of that as you, as you, as, as you know, just yeah, kind of I think that um, when we're talking about humans and resources, of course, we, humans want resources. I'm talking about the way that we view resources, what we view as a resource, and the way that we acquire those resources have changed a lot. Um, so, for example, you know, the, the people who are um, supposedly indigenous to this country, the Native Americans, they have no concept of land ownership. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm, what I'm saying is that what we view as a resource and the way that we obtain those resources has changed drastically. Of course we want to eat. We want food. Of course we're going to say, hey, you can't infringe upon this this portion because I need to get my food here. But the way that we relate to the world and to other people is based solely basically on capitalism and how much more I can get over you, which I think is a very unnatural state for human beings. Um, I think we're much more cooperative when we are um, in a place where we're not um, in a hierarchy fighting for resources. When everybody has what they need, then there's no reason to fight in that in that way. And, that, and we, we've existed that way before. Even though there's going to be clashes, um, to, the, the, to the degree that it is now, it's unheard of in any indigenous society. That's so let's, let's talk about life. that history. Now, you're, you're right about that, and I'll let Brother Aunt jump in as well. The caller that just got in, if you want to join the conversation, you do need to press 1 if you're just listening via the phone, no problem, but if you want to join the conversation, you do need to press one. So um, you're absolutely right about the indigenous thing, but here's what, I think here's some of the context that gets lost on when humans were doing that. So when you say indigenous, um, when you're talking about a sparsely populated world, so yes, you have the world being um, egalitarians, if you will. And so you're right, our original um, Ancestors also didn't really have a concept of land ownership. You're right. The Native Americans, uh, I, I, I don't know if that's still the case for them, but you're right. That has that was the history. And so then there comes a group. Um, but it ain't, it wasn't just a group. It just became the access of evolution and humans figuring out how to farm. So groups that figured out how to farm, we're not going to go chase the animals and chase our food and hunt our food. Groups that figured out how to farm, farm, and then the gather the, the hunter gatherers will come by and say, "Hey, here's some land over here. Look at this food they got," and they literally would take it. So it was inevitable what we're seeing now. Whether you want to, whatever system you want to label it is, humans as the world became populated, we're going to eventually experience scarcity and fighting for resources. It just came along with human evolution, learning how to farm and create land. So those are the groups that eventually say, hey, here's land. And that's happened with all groups and all races. Uh, Brother Priyanka, I think, wants to get in. I'm going to let him jump in real quick before I go to you, Brother Hunt. Mm -hmm. Is that you, Brother Priyanka? I think that's your number. Yeah, I was going to say good morning. Also, good morning to Hunt. I haven't heard him for a long time. Happy to hear he's doing, doing very well and very spunky. Well, uh, you know, I hear human beings, the concept of land ownership has existed. It just wasn't a, a land ownership as we see it today. And really, that's not the case. In Africa, you, I mean, today, you don't own the land. The land is for that particular group. That particular group owns that land because they fought for it and beat out other groups for it. Another thing, guess what else a male owns? His wife and children is his property. My wife told me that the other day. He said, you as my husband, I am your property. My kids is your property. 
and that's the concept of the eviction. That's the way they look at it. Now, of course, the terminology has changed as uh, human beings have progressed. But there's no one human being on the planet that's more spiritual than the other. They all are spiritual in their own way of life. That's just the way human beings do on the outside and also on the inside of you. Your microbi your microbiological world in you have a similar type of arrangement. If you run out of time, I'm gonna get back to listening. Well, thank you for your thoughts. Brother Aunt, go ahead and jump back, jump in on those thoughts as well. We've got about a minute and a half before we go to break. Uh you live, Aunt. Yeah. go ahead. Oh, okay, man. Live conversation, man. I really appreciate it, uh, uh, Montoya. I actually appreciate your work. I've been a long time, long-term follower and fan of your work, and you know this. So I absolutely reject uh, the notion, the social construct of race. Uh, human beings are a biological organism. And, and in the same time, I recognize the largest forced migration by the transcontinental kidnapping trade. I recognize that, and I recognize the race. But as long as we keep playing under the banner of race, 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 we fall under the, the, the guise of racism and white supremacy, uh, which is a ridiculous notion from the beginning. Although the thing was real, people got, got hung in the whole nine yards. Man, we get this. But listen to all the terminology we use, all based off of race, when the truth is we should focus more on a successful culture. So when we say things like indigenous people didn't do this and didn't do this, I would like you to look at 10,000 BCE on the Nile River, okay? At 10,000 BCE, one of the first wars broke out. What was that war over? It was over the natural resources of that area. So all human beings that has a mother and a father, when another group encroaches on their ability to feed their children, they're going to fight. So indigenous people on the Nile, you got uh, hunter-gatherer cattle cults, and you got the Egyptian farming cult, and they clash because Everybody needs land, whether the cattle coat need to be able to feed their herds or whether the farmers that need to farm and the farmer don't want the cattle eating up their plants. So African people have been fighting over land and resources before there was a mutation that occurred in Europe. And we need to understand this, but we can only understand this if we understand the biological organism of Homo sapiens sapiens. So I'm going to say this, study Shaka Zulu. Shaka Zulu built a great empire off of taking other Africans' land. It's called imperialism. So once again, Africans had the first stages of imperialism. We were the first imperialists. See, we're not willing to accept this. We actually follow the lies that make us docile and incomplete in this new struggle for the space age. I love it. I want to get Oshun's thoughts. We've got to go to our last break, so definitely I'll get your thoughts out of the break, Oshun. Uh, area code 213-001. If you're trying to get in, press 1. If you're just listening, no problem. We'll be right back. If you're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. LNG Technology Services, we are your industry leader in aircraft and heavy equipment repair services. In commercial business, for over 15 years, LNG technicians have over 150 years of equipment-specific knowledge and are known industry-wide for returning worn-out, broken, and overused ground support equipment back to the user in working better than new conditions. For a service job done right at a value unparalleled in the industry, contact LNG Technology Services at 478-781-4860. Again, for a service job done right, 
That number is 478-781-4860. LNG Technologies is a Mental Dialogue Gold member and proud sponsor of the Mental Dialogue community. Are you intimidated by money? Well, this is a question most people never think to ask themselves. But when forced to think about it, many people realize they have unrecognized fears that truly affect how they deal with money. If you want to learn more about money and the fears that keep you from prosperity, join us for Making Money Matter Mondays, where money meets mental health with personal finance coach Ashley Thomas and psychotherapist Dr. Katrina Pitt. Every second Monday of the month, find out if you're intimidated by money and what to do about it. To receive a link to this free Zoom event, please DM the Making Money Matter or the Mental Dialogue Instagram pages or contact 404-604-9477. Making Money Matter Mondays. We team up with Making Money Matter Mondays every second Monday of the month. This Monday night, we are discussing credit, the ins and outs from our personal finance coach, Ashley Thomas, another one of our Mental Dialogue members. We are not just a radio show. We're here to dialogue and connect. So we have these brilliant conversations, but ultimately we connect to organically do business with each other. We are a nationwide virtual neighborhood. Speaking of that, let me highlight this brother before we get back to the show. Brother Jay White is on the show with me. We've been talking about struggle this morning, but I always like to highlight uh, those who are doing something in the community that advances our community. And this brother Jay White for those in Atlanta, you, uh, this dude is a renowned, multi-talented Renaissance man, true and true. Uh, but we're going to keep this thing quick. Jay, thank you for joining us this morning. If you will, share with them what you're doing with your new business lunch. You're one of many. Um, this brother knows how to make wine. He's a tap dancer. He's one of the best spoken word artists in all of Atlanta. Um, owns several companies, own land outside the country. So I think I've given you a decent backdrop, brother. But if you will, highlight your new um, business that you're opening up, I think this weekend, if I recall correctly, or maybe last weekend, but if you will, let the people in Atlanta know what you're doing, King. Man, um, good morning, everybody. Montoya, salute you for having this, um, this platform. Um, thank you for your work you've been doing. Um, and all I ask is you think. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> you, brother, for having me on the show. Um, again, for the listeners, my name is Jay White. Uh, I do go by Jay the Dreamer um, because I believe that the Most High has gifted me to dream big and execute. So to Montoya's point, I just, well, not, I didn't just, but I uh, started a company uh, in 2017 called Petty Cabs ATL, which is uh, it's a bicycle, it's an eco-friendly bike, bicycle transport company where we typically were notorious for taking tourists around the city of Atlanta. It, it puts you in the mind of horse and buggy, but on a bike, for those who are not familiar. In other countries, you might hear uh, a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk. Um, this, we call them pedicabs. Well, started a couple of years ago with three. Now I'm up to 30. Uh, we actually have bikes in a couple of different cities, uh, Los Angeles being our most recent expansion and then uh, transitioning from um, solely tourism-based to using these pedicabs as opportunities to employ uh, what some have coined the water boys, where we bring them under our umbrella 
we put a quality product in their hand. Uh, all of the products are made from local vendors as part of what's called the Eco Village Cooperative. So the Eco Village Village Cooperative is the umbrella, but under that umbrella, we give uh, people like Rashida with Pop Culture International, uh, Gourmet Popcorn, um, Ginger Vines. We got Tassili, uh Wraps. We have uh, Ely Fresh and her products. We have um, Ajay with the Sweet Spot. We, in short, we're like an ice cream truck for uh, local vendors. So all the local vendors have to come together. They have to sell each other's products off of these bikes. So these bikes go all over the city, um, and they get a chance to distribute products that are locally made. They consist of products that are made from local uh, vendors. And uh, it's a part of a cooperative, so they have to do it together. Nobody can monopolize it. It is a, uh, a group effort. And, for instance, um, if we put 10 bikes in the city, all 10 bikes have to have all 10 products from the 10 different vendors, and they have to sell each other's wares. So that's what we are. That's what we do. Hey, I love it. Oh, sure. I think that sounds like something right up your alley. Any thoughts to hear? And, again, i just like to highlight, um, you know, brothers like Jay White, they're out here chasing these resources in a smart, eco-friendly, and effective collective way, which I think is right up your alley because I definitely respect where you're coming from. Obviously, we're having the dialogue that we're having, but I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts before we let Jay go, Queen. I'm sorry. I may have. Oh, Sean, you still there? Or are you on mute? I'm sure no, you're on mute. I got you live. Uh, she may have had stepped away. She's with her family driving, so she may have stepped away. But now, Jay White, look forward to working with you, um, getting on one of your bikes. I think that's an amazing idea, just everybody selling each other's products. That really speaks to the spirit that I think Oshun was talking about um, from her reference point. And so I just thank you so much. Just wanted to highlight what you're doing. You know, I always love supporting what you're doing and, you know, want to do some stuff where we can, you know, figure out how to collectively work together. I'm about to start the live experiences back. Matter of fact, August 19th at Taste Restaurant. I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, but if that works out, I would love to have you come back out to our first. We're we're about to start our once-a-month event again, finally, after, um, you know, since the pandemic. So looking forward to starting again and hoping you can join us. But um, if anybody wanted to get in contact with you or use one of your bikes, give them that information before I let you go, King. Sure, 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 sure. Our um, website is pettycabsatl.com. That's P as in Paul, E-B-I, like foot, petty. Uh, cab like a taxi cab, petty cab with an S on it, and pettycabsatl.com. That's also our uh, Instagram, and our phone number is 404 798 1798. Again, 404 798 and I would love to get more information to you. Montoya, again, thank you so much for the platform, for your leadership, and uh, for having bringing us together to have dialogue about um, issues that matter. I want to say that matter, that move us forward. Now, I appreciate you. Jay, the Dreamer, 73 on social media, 
follow that brother. He's going to do bigger and better things. If you're in Atlanta and want to, as you said, a tour of the, of the city, go check out this brother's cab. You can learn more about Atlanta. This brother's amazing. Thank you for coming on, King. Just wanted to highlight you this morning. Uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you, man. Well, no Thank doubt. You. Yes, sir. Uh, let me see if Oshun's back with us. Hey, Queen, you live with us back? I know you sound like you might have been busy. I'm live. I'm back. I'm so sorry about that. Oh, no, no, no problem. That's okay. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you were handling something. I don't know if you – I just wanted to – I don't know if you heard what uh, – I just highlighted Brother Jay White uh, with um, Petty Cavs Atlanta. I mean, what he was doing where he basically collectively has 10 different vendors and they're all running around the city selling each other's products. So a brilliant idea. I think it lines up with it the is. way you, you collectively like to see us move after the resources because there's different ways to do it. We're not even knocking, you know, yes. perspective. We're just giving some history. Say, hey, humans have always been off the resources. I'm definitely not, I'm not definitely not taking the just follow this one approach and don't care about anyone. Obviously, I would be doing this platform right. with that, right? But I just wanted to highlight that sometimes we can get caught up in systemically what's happening to the point where we stagnate, and that's my challenge with this discussion today. Go ahead, Queen. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say just very quickly, I know we're running out of time. I wanted to speak to what the brother said. He made some very, very good points. Um, I, when I spoke about indigenous people, I was speaking about um, specifically people, um, indigenous, quote, unquote, to the Americas. I know that when I say indigenous people, we're talking about African people who are indigenous to the world, and we operate a plethora of different ways. I was speaking directly about the people in this country. Okay. So the brothers spoke about Shaka Zulu and imperialism, but uh, we have to admit that Shaka Zulu was the exception to the rule. We have Humans have rules, and then we have exceptions. Shaka Zulu was the exception, and he kind of forced um, his aggression kind of forced other people to be in offensive and then also defensive um, positions, right, in order to respond to his aggression. Um, so I think it is, it is erroneous to say that we've always done this and we've always, uh, you know, it, um, operated in this way because, again, humans are not mon monolithic, but those people who have done that, the Moors and Shaka Zulu, have been very uh, small exceptions to the rule of living um, communally and, um, and, and having a, a more social um, outlook on. I think like it was a Huey P. P. Newton who said uh, we're not for guns and we're not we're not for war, but we understand that the only way to make a man put his gun down is to pick up a gun. And so what you are witnessing is not people who are naturally fighting for resources; it's people who are defending their position, right? Um, so I think that we all know that um, we have to be. The, the brother used the the the, the term "space age Africans," and I love it. I'm going to be picking that up. Um, we definitely have to look for look to the future. Yes, that was brilliant. We have to look forward to the future, um, but we also have to know that we wouldn't have a space age African if not for the Stone Age African. And so we know where we come from, and we know those those basic building blocks. And we also know that as a space age African, that the way that we are doing things as it stands today in this current system is not working. It's not sustainable. It's not going to work. And so if we're so let, let, let me say this real quick. Let me say this. So when so here's here's what I want to kind of add to is not working. So for me, it's not working. If you get out, in my opinion, if we get out of the struggle mindset, so it's not working would force us into in age, force us into understanding what currently is happening in the global world, chasing after technology from the standpoint right. that our gap doesn't get bigger. So, so you know what I'm saying, versus demonizing right. historically what's happening to us, it's play the game that's available and we're missing that boat. So it's not working, but we can, it, there's a plan that can work. And sometimes we try to stay collective and look 
backwards versus looking forward. Yeah, one minute, I'll give you the last thought of the um, the afternoon, Queen. Thank you so much for being on the show. If you want to get out of any public information, you can. You have the last minute. For everybody listening, I'm going to play an amazing song uh, on Robert Glass, Glass's Black Radio to end the show. But go ahead, Queen. you got a minute to close us out. Thank you so much for being with me. Okay. Um, just my last thought that I was going to say is that um, uh, the mindset, the mindset of scarcity, as we talk about shifting our mindsets and um, our access to resources and moving forward, I think the idea of scarcity is another reason that we're stuck in the mentality of fighting for resources. Mm-hmm. These things should be happening, happening concurrently, that we go after resources and we, we do what's best for us individually and collectively, but also understanding that the mindset of scarcity is, is also keeping us um, in a place of lack and also keeping us in a, in a place of battling people for things that are not, um, that are not scarce at all. Um, so let's just let's just think about when we when we talk about moving forward into the future that we have to consider the ills of the current model and how to move forward and shift that as well. Not just going after what we know is out there and available, Correct. but shifting the way that we view those things and going to get them. Montoya, um, no, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was brilliant as usual. I am Oshun Ojo. You can catch me at uh, BeLikeAGirl.org for any STEM-related activities for um, Black girls, and you can hit me on Facebook at Oshun Ia Ibeji Shango. Thank you, Montoya. I love it. Sit back and enjoy this song. We're going to have an extra little five minutes to enjoy a beautiful song. I think it's just perfect to end today's show. So thank you all for tuning in. Share this show with others. We'll see you all next Saturday. All I ask is that you think. This is a song, Robert Glasper's Black Superhero. Yeah. Black
it through. Kind of stupid, reflect the struggle that they put us through. With the shrimp to fight the power like Chuck Dia do. With the insight to be equal, no disguise needed. A voice that finds reason to multiply people in the street for the cause. Watching on Washington miners will be walking through walls. Type of superhero show up when ain't no one to call. Better shield you from them shields that been killing us all. High beams for eyes, the peace, the villains in the dark. Power of resolution for a war with even thought. The knowledge to build and grow as they live and take care of the kids and the older folk. The queen cause they need it most. Politics with the king. About economic growth. QPTSD. Cause mental health ain't a joke. Feed the hungry and dope. Everyone would know. Everywhere would go. Every rock, every hood, every city, every idea of how black men in this culture and society get framed and how everything possible is actually designed to actually diminish what your true power is, right? And so when you speak about the superhero-ness of our communities, every ghetto, every block, every street corner, really all of those men are God. They're just living in a reality that tears them down and makes them feel as though they're not what they actually are. They know it when they look in the mirror. female take on it. You know, it's, it's on some levels a little more heartbreaking, right? Because it's like we've created this reality that walks away from us being clear about the fact that the black woman is actually the goddess on this planet. The mitochondrial information that's requisite to create every type of man that exists on this planet is derivative of hers, Absolutely. right? So if we actually have to sit there figuring out which being on this planet actually constitutes God, in that term, if we're framing it in that way, the actual living God on this planet, the only direction you can point in is the direction of the black woman. Black woman. Firstly, like us as an extension of her, but firstly her, right? Because none of it exists without her. Without her. Without her. Without her. Without her. 